from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the CER Podcast. My name is Sophia Besch and I'm a research fellow here at the Center for European Reform. And today I'm in conversation with Ian Bond, who's a foreign policy director, and Sam Lowe, who's also a research fellow here at the CER. And today is another bulletin podcast. Every two months, the CER publishes the bulletin where we zoom in on three European topics that are particularly important and go in with an analysis that should have a bit of a longer shelf life. This bulletin is looking at Trump and Europe, at Brexit, TTIP and the City of London, and at defense negotiations between the EU and the UK. As ever, the three researchers get three questions and five minutes each. Let's start with you, Ian. You've written a piece on Trump and Europe Atlantic hurricane season. You've written that piece before the G7 summit, but surely now it's even more relevant. Can the transatlantic partnership be saved after the G7 fiasco? It certainly can be saved, but this has certainly not made it any easier. I mean, everything about the G7 uh, and the relationship between Trump and the other participants seems to have gone badly, really. Uh, both in terms of the discussion on trade and the fact that uh, Trump, having signed up very reluctantly to the communique, then took offence at something that uh, Justin Trudeau said and walked that back and claimed he'd been stabbed in the back by his allies and then sent his surrogates out to be extremely offensive to his allies. All of that is not helping to preserve a good transatlantic relationship. But how much of a threat is Trump really to the international trading system? How much of this is bluster and how much of it will have lasting consequences? Trump is doing things as well as saying them. So we have the various tariffs that Trump is imposing on steel and aluminium, but it's the way that he's choosing to do that. In other words, he's not doing things on economic grounds. He's claiming that uh, European steel and aluminium imports are a national security threat to the US. And what that does is that it enables other countries around the world that want to go in for protectionist behavior to say, well, if America has uh, national security problems, we're going to have national security problems too, if that's a good, uh, a good excuse. And then the second thing he's doing is that he's directly attacking the WTO, among other things, by refusing to allow the appointment of new uh, judges to the appeal body of the WTO. And that means that at a certain point, probably not too far away, it will be very hard for the WTO to actually deal with cases that are brought to it. So he's really um, attacking some of the fundamental tenets of the international trading order over the last 70 years and a system that's enabled America to become extremely prosperous as well as enabling Europe to become very prosperous. Speaking of Europe, what is it that the Europeans should do now? Should they confront Trump? Should they concede to Trump or should they circumvent him? Well, they need to do a bit of all of those. Uh, on the confrontational side, they have to take a firm line on the trade issues, and the EU is already putting in place retaliatory measures. On the uh, conceding side, when Trump says that the Europeans are not spending enough on their own defense, he's not wrong. And it would be good to see Germany in particular, but not only Germany, spending more on defense. Not because Trump is bullying them into it, but because the threat environment has changed and they need to spend more. And on the circumventing, what's really important is that people don't forget that Trump is not the whole of America. There are lots of people, Democrat and Republican, 
in the US who are horrified by what is happening and the fundamental interests that underpin, underpin the transatlantic relationship are still there. We still need each other for defence, for security more broadly and for international prosperity through the liberal trading system. Sam, you've written a piece on Brexit, TTIP and the City of London. What has the UK proposed on trade in financial services and what was the EU's response? In a minute and a half. In a minute and a half, okay. Um, essentially, the UK proposed something along the lines of what everyone knew it always was going to propose, which is we want to be able to continue to sell into the European Union. We want the City of London to be able to continue to sell into the European Union under the same terms as now, but without any of the obligations attached. And, they, and, and they've referred to this as mutual recognition. So the idea that we might regulate differently from the European Union, but we achieve the same outcomes, so therefore... Our financial services industry should be able to sell into the EU and be treated the same as now. Obviously, the EU has said no and, and has indicated it will say no to this when it's, when it's officially proposed. And this is understandable, I think. So the EU has been keen to include financial services in TTIP, which was the, the proposed trade agreement with the US. But is the reluctance to do the same with the UK just hypocrisy? I think some in the UK think so. Um, TTIP is something that's been pointed to by many uh, in government and outside of government as an example of the EU's prior willingness to engage uh, in trade and financial services under the construct of a trade agreement. And in uh, practice, in terms of what the EU had put on the table, it looks like it would have created some sort of regulatory dialogue. There would have been discussions as to f future opportunities for equivalence rulings and, and the like. That's not the full story. Behind behind the scenes, there was another non-paper that was proposed that talked about something called mutual reliance, uh, which sounds a bit like mutual recognition. So there is something there's something there that maybe in the past, when in the post-financial crisis world, when regulators were being sort of encouraged to cooperate internationally, there was maybe something there that the EU maybe thought about mutual recognition a little bit, but it wasn't very well defined. It was in a non-paper that the EUS rejected and didn't get any further. So the UK shouldn't really be holding out hopes that this is going to get anywhere. And yes, pointing your finger at Michel Barnier and saying you're a hypocrite might make you feel good, but it doesn't necessarily lead to beneficial outcomes. So what is the most then that the UK can hope for on future trade and financial services with the EU if it does not change the red lines that it has stated previously? I think it's important to, to start with just articulating the red lines and why the EU will reject mutual recognition as proposed. And that's because the single market for services has developed over the time. The obligations that come with it in terms of you accept that there's harmonisation of rules, you accept that there's enforcement that sits above the nation state level um, allows for national regulators to be confident that if a financial services provider from another country is selling into yours within the EU construct that they're not ripping off your consumers if something goes wrong you can address it that they're working off the same minimum standards and the like so if the UK were to change its red lines and say actually we want to stay within the single market we want to stay within that construct and we're okay with the obligations that come with it then yes, we could have something similar to the access that exists now. But that's not what we're saying. We're saying that we want to extricate ourselves from the single market, the EU single market, the obligations that come with it. And under a free trade agreement type scenario, we will be treated like any other third country, to be honest. And a free trade agreement really doesn't offer much in the means of market access. 
instead of the UK wasting its time with mutual recognition and a proposal that we know won't fly, it should actually now be working with the EU in discussing how to actually improve the existing equivalence setup so as to ensure that after we're left that it's actually a bit better than it is now, where it's a bit ad hoc, it doesn't, it's not got great coverage, and uh, the Commission isn't bound to sort of consult before removing an equivalence ruling or the like, just to firm it up a little bit. Of course, this is still really bad for the UK's financial services industry, but but unless the red lines change, it's just an inevitable consequence of Brexit. Right. So the third piece in the bulletin coincidentally was written by me, and it's about UK-EU defence negotiations. And so reluctantly and exceptionally, I'm going to hand over the moderating microphone to Sam so that he can ask me three questions about it. Sam. Could I see the three questions, please? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Sophia, in my role as moderator, I'll be holding you to your five minutes I'll be very strict. So, getting a Brexit deal on defence will be quick and easy because both sides have a clear mutual interest in cooperation. True or false? False, unfortunately. This is what we thought was going to happen. We thought that defence negotiations were going to be the one area where surely both sides would agree quite quickly that they have an interest in cooperation. And what we are finding now are, are three things really that stand in the way of that. One is economic interests. Um, defence negotiations are not just about deploying troops together, they're also about developing capabilities together. And that's when industry interests come into play. The EU is currently trying to strengthen its defence industrial base and there's a reluctance in spending money on a third party, which is what the UK will be after Brexit. There are also deeper trust issues that uh, were underestimated, perhaps certainly by the UK negotiators. The EU is pursuing a quite controversial concept of strategic autonomy, which can be understood as the EU being able to act independently without having to rely on third parties. The origin of that concept was that the EU wanted uh, independence from the United States. It is now being applied to the UK because there are some in Brussels that truly don't trust the UK to be a reliable defense partner in the future. We've seen that certainly uh, in the Galileo spat where the EU is preventing the UK from being able to produce sensitive technologies that it will rely on in building its satellite navigation system. And then finally, political interests and political tempers have been running high on, on both sides. The civil servants that have been negotiating knew the defense brief very well, but when politicians become involved, which is what happens when industry becomes involved and, and money is on the table, it's quite hard to be rational. And so right now I'm actually quite pessimistic uh, that it will be a quick and easy deal when it comes to defense. So how do you see the EU's relationship with third countries developing in the field of defense? Well, the EU does not have a very good way of dealing with third countries in the field of defense. It's really not tapping into the potential that cooperation with third countries has. So that's true for the operational space and the capability space. But particularly in operations, I think there's a developing consciousness that third countries are finding that it's quite hard to deploy with the European Union. In the end, they often choose not to, even though they might have similar strategic and foreign policy interests. And Brexit is motivating the European Union, the Euro European External Action Service to revisit the way that it works with third countries. So in the medium to longer term, we might see some changes there. So how does the UK get itself out of this mess? What should Britain's strategy and negotiations with the EU be going forward? Going forward, it's important to stress what the UK can contribute very concretely um, to European defence, both in the operational sphere and in the capability sphere. So what 
Britain has an interest in is to get this out of the legalistic approach that the Commission has taken and look more at the way that it can actually work with the European Union. So what it should do is propose concrete capability projects for the next couple of years that other member states are interested in working with it and propose concrete assets and defense capabilities that it is willing to contribute to EU missions in the future and hope that the EU will take it by its word and see its own interest when it comes to working together on defense. All right. Thank you very much, Ian and Sam, for answering these questions and Sam for asking some as well. Thanks for listening to the CER podcast and thanks to Beth Oppenheim, our editor. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and follow us on Twitter, CER underscore EU.